invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 7. And as you're turning there, um, I want to just kind of begin by talking about the main subject this morning. I want to talk to you about a very important issue in your life. I want to talk to you about getting remarried. Now, some of you are like, remarried? I'm I'm not married at all. I've never been married. And kids, right? You kids in here? I know what you're thinking. You're like, married? Ew. Gross. Or maybe you're looking at your spouse and you're like, remarried? I'm like, I, I kind of like this person. Things are going pretty good. <laughs> like, you know, it's not perfect, but we got a good marriage and I, I'm, I'm quite fine the way it is. And maybe others of you are looking beside you at your spouse going, I'm listening. <laughs> and as you think about this concept, I want to invite you to imagine a situation with me. I want to paint a picture for you of a woman who is married to a man and a particular kind of man. She's married to a man who is absolutely demanding. He demands uh, perfection in everything, but he provides no help or no ability to accomplish any of that. Some of you are like, I don't have to imagine that, I'm married to him. But this kind of a man is the man that you wake up to every morning, and he looks at you, he says, good morning, you failed. And he leaves little sticky notes around the house, but instead of of saying, I love you, you're beautiful, they say, you failed. Every time you turn around, all you hear is you failed, you failed, you failed, and this kind of husband and this kind of marriage, it's tyrannical, it's oppressive, and under his leadership, you can never do anything right, never meet his expectations, you constantly feel crushed under this weight. And the result is usually one of two things in this kind of relationship, either despair and hopelessness because of the condemnation that you constantly feel, or perhaps you buck against that and instead you turn around and you rebel against that kind of authority and you push back in every way possible. You lash out, you break the rules, you smash this flat screen TV. Now, I want you to take that picture in your mind of this kind of marriage, and here's what I want you to understand. This is you, or this was you. You are, whether you're male or female, you are the woman in this marriage under this kind of tyranny and oppression according to the Word of God. You see, the Bible teaches this very important truth. Paul's going to teach it to us this morning, that in a spiritual sense, every human being is born already married, and married to this husband. And this husband is referred to in this passage that we're going to look at right now as the law. Listen to what Paul says in the first six verses of Romans chapter 7. He says this, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, 
she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for the law. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The point in this passage is so simple. Here it is. If you are a Christian, you are no longer married to the law. We are married or engaged, if you will, to be married to Christ. We are married to Jesus exclusively. You are bound to him, you belong to him, and you bear fruit for him. Romans 7, the entire chapter, is answering questions about the law, and Paul's objective is to show the Christian what gospel liberty or gospel freedom really looks like, especially as it relates to our understanding of the law. So it answers this question for us this morning, and this question is going to lead us through this passage. Here it is. What is exactly the believer's relationship to the law, to our ex, to our former spouse? How do we relate to them now? Well, first, what Paul identifies is this, that I am no longer bound by the law. Now, I want you to notice that Paul is speaking directly to Christians. Look at what it says. Or do you not know brothers? He's speaking to those who profess Christ. He's talking to the church in Rome. And as believers, he wants them to know and understand this incredibly important concept. And he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. To those who understand the law, they've read the law, they, they grasp its content. And what Paul does here is he lays out really two simple principles for us. The first is this, the law has a legitimate hold on you if you are still in sin, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, the law itself has a hold on you. You are bound by the law. That's an incredibly potent and powerful term. It's a legal marriage. You'll notice that there is legal language he uses here. He wants you to understand this is a legitimate marriage. It's legally binding, and you have no way out. There's only one way out of this marriage. He's going to get to that. The second principle he holds out for us is this, that the law is binding on a person only as long as that person is alive. It's exactly what he says there in verse 1. Do you see that? And then he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to illustrate this point. He gives this illustration of marriage. A, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage, and so on and so forth. He spells this out, and he's expecting us to understand that this is a very clear principle. It's a clear law. Now, I just want to be very clear here. Paul is not teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage here. So don't push this too far. And that's not what he's doing here. He's saying the law only has jurisdiction over living people. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait a second here. Um, that's me. That's us. We're, we're living people, right? We're all alive. Last time I checked. 
Well, the living people here in this context are actually, ironically, those who are spiritually dead. (laughs) We looked at this briefly last week, but it's imperative that we grasp this idea since it is really the dominant theme in this entire chapter. This chapter is about our relationship to the law. So why, I just want to ask, why does Paul ask this question? Why does he begin here with this question? And here's the reason why this is so important to understand, because there is so much law in the Bible. Think about this for a second. You're like, why, why is this an issue? Because, because the people Paul is speaking to, they, they, they only have, think about it, their only Bible is the Old Testament. And that means that as they read the Old Testament, guess what they keep reading about? The law, the law, the law, the law. It's just relentless, this idea of the law. So naturally speaking, they're hearing Paul talk about the gospel and being in Christ and the free gift of God's grace. And so the natural question is, well, Paul, what do we do with half our Bibles? How are we supposed to understand all this law stuff, Paul, right? That's been the dominant question. Remember in chapter, all the way back to chapter three, but, but chapter six, the two questions, okay, Paul, if this gospel of grace is, is so free and so great, why don't we keep sinning so that grace may abound, right? You see what they're saying? What about the law? And so Paul takes this entire chapter to really develop this theme, and it's so critical for us to grasp. There's so much in the Bible about the law. How do we reconcile that reality with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, it's possible to break the Bible down into a number of different categories or themes, but I want to argue for you this morning that one of the most important uh, themes or, or two of the most important categories that we need to learn to view the Bible through are these two categories, law and gospel. And I'm convinced, listen, that if you grasp these two concepts and how they fit together, you really understand the entirety of how the Bible is functioning and how the the Word of God is intended to function in your life. And if you mess these up, if you don't grasp how these two things relate to each other, you're going to slide into this legalism or moralism in your life, or you're going to slide over here into antinomianism and, and thinking that you don't have to obey anything in the Word of God. You see, both things are pitfalls that are disastrous for the Christian life. And I think a lot of Christians, listen, they they live the Christian life confused, confused, legitimately confused about how the Bible speaks to both law and gospel. And I hope this morning we can kind of bring some clarity to this issue. And I hope that this is helpful for our hearts this morning. Let me frame it like this. The law says do, and the gospel says done, okay? The law says do, and the gospel says done. In fact, John Bunyan helpfully wrote this. He, he, he framed it like this poetically. He said this, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet or hands. Greater things the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. That's such a great way of understanding this, this distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, Paul, again, remember, he's addressing the law as as the Mosaic law. We looked at that again last week. But Paul has made it clear, we saw this again, that the law is much bigger than that. That that is not just those who have the Mosaic. It's not just the Jews who have the codified, you know, written law that are accountable to God for the law. 
We saw this, right? That the Romans has already laid out that everybody in the world is accountable to the law of God. Remember this? We know the law because God has revealed um, it in two ways, right? First way is creation. We know there's a creator. There is a divine law giver. Secondly, Paul has said that God has revealed the law on every human heart, in a sense. And how do we know the law? What's the word? Not creation, but conscience. You can say those with me, right? Okay, kids, right? Creation, say it. Creation, come on, come on, some little participation. Don't be afraid, okay? Secondly, conscience. Now, no. Here's why I'm saying this is why you're like, why are you making a big deal about it? Because listen, this is so helpful in our evangelism to the world. When we can walk alongside people in the world and say, listen, you you do know there is a God. You do. You may be suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You, you may not want to admit this to yourself, but you know deep down in your side that there is, there is a God who is all-powerful, he is sovereign, and that you will one day give an account to him. And by the way, you want to know the reason why you know right and wrong, why you have a conscience, why you understand morality? It's because God has placed it there in your heart. The law, now some say, listen, is republished with Moses. Let me, let me walk this out for you. Law is a, is a part of the, 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 the fabric of the scriptures, and it begins all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Do you realize that? In chapters 1 and 2, that's the first place we read about law. Do you remember what the law was? You shall not eat from this tree, right? This one tree. Everything else you can eat from. And here's law. Listen, if you do what I ask you to do perfectly, you will live. If you disobey even one command, you will what? Say it with me. Die. That's law. That's law. And you see, that, that is recapitulated or republished in a greater sense in the Mosaic Covenant, where all you have to do, by the way, is go, go read Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy chapter 28, and what you see is this. Obey this, obey this, obey the law, obey the, obey the law, and you will live. Disobey, disobey, and, anyway, and you will die. That's why Jesus, if you remember, he had this conversation with the rich young ruler. You remember that? Remember when the, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember Jesus' response? Oh, it's, it's simple. You, you want to you inherit eternal life? You want to merit, just obey all the commands. The law is holy it's righteous and it's good. Paul's going to say that later in chapter 7. But in another sense, listen, it is terrible news. It's terrible news. It's a terrible place to live. It's a terrible marriage to live in. Because although it says good things, it does so in a way that kills us and condemns us because we can never fully obey. We can never do it perfectly and we're always being condemned by it. It's what Paul says in in Galatians 3, chapter 10. I believe it's on the screen behind you. Is that right? There it is. Look at what he says. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide. Listen to this. By all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see that? This is a horrible marriage that we are trapped in apart from Christ. 
and we're unable to get ourselves out of this marriage. We're legally bound. That's what Paul is saying here to the law. It has jurisdiction over all those who are alive, so to speak, all of all those who, as we know, are dead in their sins. So here's the question. How do we get out of this marriage? Well, he answers it for us. It's a simple answer. Death. Death is the only way out of this marriage. Death ends the marriage in verses 2 and 3. In fact, look at verse 3 there. He says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. You see, the, the idea here is Paul is showing us how we can legally be remarried, how we can legally be transferred from this jurisdiction into a different jurisdiction. By the way, this is why at marriage, you notice this, in, 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 a, in every kind of biblical marriage ceremony, you know what we say in our vows? We say this, right? Till death do us part. We realize that death marks the end of our marriage, okay? You realize that? You are not going to be married to your spouse in heaven. I heard one person say it like this, I, I know that in heaven I won't be married to my spouse, but I'm going to sit really close to her. But that's, that's, that's the idea here. And it's obvious, right? We understand this, that if, if you cheat while you're still, your spouse that you're married to is still alive, you're considered an adulteress. And we get this, that if the spouse dies and you remarry, listen, though you may struggle with that or feel guilty about that, you're not in sin for doing that. Through death, you're no longer bound to the law. But what's so interesting here that it's not, catch this, there's a bit of a shift that happens in this metaphor that he's using. It's not the law that dies, it's you. You have to die. Not physically, but spiritually. You see, when I die, I'm no longer bound to the law, and it gets even better than that. Secondly, I no longer belong to the law. Again, all this is, is, is marriage language. The gospel places you under new ownership. And look at how he shifts in verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. The gospel acknowledges the law, but it goes beyond the law. See, the law says that as long as you are alive, that is, in sin, in Adam, separated from God because of your sin, that then the law says to you, I own you. I have legal authority over you. You belong to me. But the gospel shows how Jesus frees us from belonging to the law. See, how? How does, how does the gospel free us from belonging to the law? Jesus comes into the world, and he dies in our place to release us from the law. Now, it's really important to understand this, that when you look at the scriptures, the Bible makes such a big deal about this. Remember that at the beginning of the gospels, it said that Jesus, remember this? He was born into this world under the law right? 
then if you read the Gospels, one of the things you should take notice of is this, how, how intentionally the Gospel writers are putting on display Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. And when the Pharisees accuse him of breaking the law, the Gospel writers go to great pains to show you, no, 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 they don't understand the law. Jesus is the one who is perfectly obeying the law. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to what? Fulfill the law. And it gets even better than that as we look at the Gospels. Then Jesus Christ goes to a a cross willingly, right? And he's killed. Galatians 3.13 reminds us, under the curse of the law, for cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And then as Jesus hangs on the cross, he declares outright, it is finished. That statement is made in relation to the law. The demands of the law have been met. I have paid the penalty for the law. I have suffered the condemnation for the law. It is finished. That's gospel. That's gospel in relation to the law. The law says do, Jesus says done. Now the law that had authority over you, listen, you died to it if you're in Jesus Christ because Christ died to it. Christ fulfilled all of its demands. Christ paid its penalty. And you then, we saw this in chapter six, you're baptized into the very death of Christ. What he has accomplished, you now receive. It's imputed to your account. It's given to you. You're justified because of all that Christ has done with the law. Now, you say, why did he do this? He tells us here, just look at this, just look down at verse 4. Notice those two words, so that, so that you may belong to another. And you see, it's not just his death that unites you to him in this new marriage. Notice, notice how this is possible. You may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You now get to enter into a life-giving union, a life-giving marriage that will bear fruit in your life, that will be a blessing to you. And instead of the tyranny and the oppression, there is freedom and life and joy and satisfaction in, given to you. It's given through a legal union just like marriage, and that's how Paul is wanting us to think here. New life, in a sense, equals new marriage. You know, when I married my wife, I was really blessed to have her take my name. And in doing so, what she was communicating was, I am his. I've come into his family. We are one. It's an expression of that biblical principle of of being united together as one flesh. And I know, listen, I know, it's not popular. Even this idea of a a woman taking her husband's name, it's not popular in our feministic, individualistic culture that sees marriage as simply patriarchal, 
uh, a patriarchal system invented by men in order to oppress women. That's what many in the world want you to believe. But contrary to that, listen, the Bible teaches that marriage with God-ordained order and roles is God's plan. Marriage is used by Paul as a metaphor that depicts Christ's relationship with his people. All you have to do is read Ephesians chapter 5, right? Husbands and wives. In your marriage, we see this. It depicts a different marriage, a marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And by the way, just as a side note, in in that marriage metaphor in Ephesians chapter 5, notice that Christ is the husband, and notice this, he doesn't take our name, we take his name. So why do you say that? Because I want you to understand that, that this isn't patriarchal, this is theological. Marriage depicts this gospel reality. Even, even rightly ordered, unbelieving marriages depict this reality. They point people to, to the gospel in a very kind of unique way. Marriage depicts this deep and intimate union, which, by the way, is, when we were baptized, as we saw last week, you notice that we're baptized into the name of Jesus. The statement we are making as Christians when we enter into this new marriage is this, I am his. I am coming under his leadership, his authority, his loving, tender, faithful care of my soul. I will follow him. The beauty of a godly, earthly marriage points to the reality of a greater, eternal marriage. So when you were united to him, you died under the law. And now, just like Jesus, we are no longer under the law of Moses. Listen, that doesn't mean that we are divorced from all those commandments, right? You shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. In fact, Jesus reiterates virtually all of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. The idea here, though, is this, it's really important to grasp, We are no longer under that covenant, though we do obey those commands, okay? We are no longer under that covenant. We do, though, obey those commands. Remember, the law says, do this or die. That's what the old covenant was. Do this perfectly and you will live. Let me define for you this idea of covenant. A covenant is a binding relationship between God and man. It's the simplest way to understand it. And under that covenant, that old covenant, we were all doomed by it. Again, we still obey commands in the Christian life, but the point that Paul is making here is that we are no longer bound by or belong to this former covenant. We belong to a new and better covenant. It may have many of the same commands, but listen, this is the key. It operates completely differently, and it produces different results in us because it gives to us a different power, a different ability. And we see that finally in this this last point, I no longer bear fruit for the law. This is now your relationship to the law. You no longer bear fruit for the law. And he comes back to this picture again. He says at the end of verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But look what's so different in verse 6. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the point here is that we bear fruit for God now in this new marriage, in this relationship. Fruit that reflects this new union and this new relationship. The relationship with Christ is one of life and not one of death. In verse 5, we, we're reminded here that, that Moses, through the law, they poured on the good commandments, but the more that they were poured on us, the more it aroused or incited our flesh and those passions to disobey. But when Jesus marries us, we flourish under that leadership, under that kind of love. And we bear fruit from the life of that union with him. And this fruit is a new kind of obedience. It's not the old way of the written code, but the new way of the spirit, Paul says. Oh, just wait till we get to Romans chapter 8 where Paul unpacks that theme. But here's what you need to grasp. In this shift from the old covenant to the new covenant, here's what we see. This shift is marked by internal craving. This is what it means in verse 7, this new way of the Spirit. It's marked by internal craving, not external command. It's marked by internal delight, not external duty. This written code works from the outside in on dead hearts, okay? That's what the written code that on, on the tablet of stone did, that written code. You think about that. When Moses came down from the mountain and, and he had the Ten Commandments etched into stone, think about what the Bible says. The Bible says that these commands were given to a people who had hearts of stone, right? This is the blessing of the new covenant, the idea that we'll no longer have these hearts of stone. But I want you to, to see how this works and how hard it is to live in this kind of relationship. I, uh, I went and I grabbed, I grabbed some rocks here, and uh, I had two questions already I wanted to use. I don't use props very often, but I thought this might be helpful. And as I walked in with these, one person said, ah, the smooth stones illustration. I'm like, nope, that's not it. And then I, I walked up here, and Brad Timpson said to me, he's like, are we stoning somebody today? I said, that's definitely not it. Um, but if you want to be the first... Keep it up. I'm just kidding. I never said that. Um, I want you to see, just by way of another illustration, okay? It's, it's like this. Here comes Moses with the, the, the tablets of stone, and then he's giving the, the commands to people who have a heart of stone. You think about it. And you want to know what happens when you smack two stones together? Nothing. Nothing. You can't do anything. Doesn't work. The commands don't get into the heart. Right? You can't press the stone into the stone. It doesn't work like that. And so, you, so, what is needed in the Christian life is we need God to do invasive heart surgery by the power of His Spirit. We got this heart of stone. Every one of us, apart from Christ, we need the great physician to come alongside and mercifully take out, cut out this heart of stone that cannot, has zero ability to obey God. No longings, 
no cravings, no passions for God, and no ability. And what we need is God to rip that out of us and to do a heart transplant, to recreate in us, by the power of his spirit, a brand new heart that beats with a passion for him, that loves him, that has new longings and new cravings and new desires, and listen, new power, because the spirit of God now permanently endures dwells you. Amen. But you know what's crazy? Here's what's crazy. Because as I say all of that, I, I know. I know what you're wrestling with in your mind, and I know this because I wrestle with it in my own life. Then why do I keep disobeying the law? Why do I keep struggling? If I, I, I know if I got these new cravings and I got the Holy Spirit, why can't, I, why can't I grow the way I want to? And we need to be reminded, and Paul's going to do this in this chapter, listen, that while sin no longer reigns, sin still remains. And you know what? This is scary. It's possible that even though we're married to Christ, so to speak, that we can have a spiritual affair in our lives. Even as Christians, we can operate as if we're still under the law. And I know many Christians struggle under this form of, of, of moralism or legalism in their lives. Everything is about the right behavior, and it's a lot of times devoid from the right heart. And here's what that often looks like. Let me just describe in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, how this often looks in a Christian's life who is still struggling with living under law. They place themselves back under law. They have a spiritual affair with the law. Here's what this can look like. Maybe this is even describes, describes you in some way this morning. If you operate under the law, you will inevitably be a judgmental individual. You will be condemning, constantly looking down uh, on, on others because, listen, because ultimately you feel so condemned by God. And as a result, you're inclined to this, this self-righteousness and hypocrisy, but to deal with that and, and the guilt and shame you often feel, you turn that on others to make yourself feel better. If you operate under law, you will be self-justifying, constantly defending yourself, afraid of having sin pointed out in your life. And though you recognize you're guilty, you believe God is constantly angry at you, constantly shaking his head at you. And oftentimes you find yourself drifting into anger Depression, discouragement. You're crippled by fear. Constantly saying, you're not good enough. You've got to do more. You've got to try harder. And your life is dominated by trying to establish your own identity and worth by your own abilities, by your own sufficiencies, by your own adequacy. You're afraid of people truly knowing you. You struggle to let people in, truly in, behind the facade. 
You try to fix yourself, but to no avail. You live under the tyranny of the fear of man. Even in your service to God, you become bitter and angry because you serve not from love. You serve for the affirmation of others. You serve for the recognition of others. And when you don't get that and you see yourself working so hard and and you don't see other people working so hard, you look down your nose, you get frustrated not only with them, but you get frustrated with God. You say, God, look how much I'm doing, God, and why isn't anybody else doing this? It's a good time to call for people to serve in kids' ministry. Some of you men especially, we need you. Let's be honest for a moment. We all, listen, let's be very clear. We all have a little bit of this inside of us, don't we? Some of us have a lot more than others, but we all have a little bit of this within us because sin still remains and self-righteousness is such a dominating struggle in the human heart. It just is. But Jesus comes alongside of us even in this struggle and he says, he wants to say to us, listen, lovingly, listen, but firmly, why do you keep running back to your ex? Done with that. In fact, listen listen to what Paul writes in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses two and three. Listen to this, he says this, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's so afraid for the church and for Christians that you're going to be deceived, that we're going to be deceived, that we're going to be pulled back away from pure devotion to Christ, love for the grace of the gospel, and we're going to be deceived like the serpent deceived Eve into believing that we can be good enough, that we can be God, that we can establish our own righteousness. But you see, the new way of the Spirit has nothing to do with, with this idea of do this or die or, or obey and live. The gospel has the exact opposite result on the soul. It says this, live from this new heart and then obey with all of that power, that that resurrection life that I have infused into you by the presence of my spirit. From a new heart, that new power. Forget about Red Bull. The gospel gives you wings, okay? Okay. Living in this, listen, living in this is so much better. It's so much better than running back to the old marriage, that old relationship with the law. Living in this, you're not dominated by this this sense of condemning others, but of how thankful you are instead for God's grace that's been lavished upon you in Jesus Christ. You see, you see people around you, you know, where before you're like, you're looking at people wondering why they're acting like such idiots. Then you, you know, in this life, you look at people and you're like, man, they're acting like idiots, but I'm the chief idiot. Praise God for his compassion on me. Man, I better have compassion on them. You thank God regularly for his grace. You're so frustrated by your sin, but you're not destroyed by your sin. You run back to the cross constantly and rejoice of the forgiveness and freedom that's yours in Jesus Christ. You want people to tell you about your sin. You quickly repent when it's exposed. You you are quick to forgive when you recognize there's relational strain. You let people in. You share your struggles. You share your failures, failures. You share your sins because you're not ruled by what people think about you. You're ruled by what God says about you. 
You strive to grow and you turn from sin to righteousness, not to establish your own identity and worth, but because you have embraced your identity and worth in Jesus Christ, in all that he is, and all that he's done for you, in all that he's freely given to you. You see, in this life, living in the light of the gospel, you're hopeful, you're not hopeless, You aren't filled with depression but joy. You may struggle at times and and in even deep ways, but you'll always find your heart being drawn back to cling to the gospel of grace and to fight to cling to it as your source of joy and peace and rest and satisfaction. And even in the face of sin and suffering, you rejoice that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, it's all about a new heart with new desires and a new power to do what God desires you to do, to bear fruit for God. And everything you do for God is the flow. Listen, this is so important this morning. It is the flow from intimacy with God. All fruitful ministry, all fruitful service, all fruitful living, all fruitful worship flows from deep intimacy with Jesus. You can be married to your spouse and have that union, but you may not enjoy intimacy with your spouse, that communion. May it not be so with God. So let me ask you this question, are you in communion with God? Are you cultivating and fostering that communion with God? Are you setting aside time daily to slow down the busyness of your life, to refocus your heart, to spend time in God's Word and let the lover of your soul speak into your life? Refine who you are. Settle, listen, your soul. We need this so desperately. To those of you here today who who aren't believers, we're grateful that you're here, but I want to ask you a question. Would you be married to Christ this morning? He he, he gives you, Jesus Jesus is giving you right now a proposal, a proposal to to be married to him. And his proposal goes something like this. Will you repent of your sin? Will you repent of your self-righteousness? Will you repent of your striving to somehow earn your way into my presence, into my good graces? And will you instead realize that I came for you? Will you realize that I, I was born under the law? I lived and obeyed the law perfectly. I died under the curse of the law. And I declared it was finished so that you could be set free from the law and you could be set free to live in me and for me for all eternity. Will you turn and believe the gospel? Surrender yourself to Jesus as Lord today. Embrace the truth that he died and rose for you so that you can bear fruit for him. Would you marry the one who loves your soul so much that he would go to the greatest heights and the deepest valley to rescue and redeem you? So what is our relationship to the law? Well, let's be clear. We are not bound by it. We do not belong to it. And we no longer bear fruit for it. Instead, we are bound to Christ. We belong to Christ. And we bear fruit for Christ our relationship with Christ, listen, this marriage 
is life-giving, it is joy-giving, it is soul-satisfying, and it is eternal. Loved ones, listen, in this marriage, there is no until death do you part. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that precious truth. Father, that we are eternally in union with you. That your love for us is an eternal, unending love. It's a love, Lord, that takes us and washes us white as snow. It frees us, Lord, from the curse and condemnation of sin. It empowers us, stripping out that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh that loves you and that longs for you. God, in your kindness, you have filled us with your spirit. And we pray, God, that you would help us to cultivate that intimacy with you, Lord, that that would be one of the supreme desires of our hearts. Even now, Lord, God, where there has been many, maybe even in this room, who have not been cultivating that intimacy, who feel so far from you, Lord, because their, their, their communion with you is not what it should be. Lord, I pray today you would remind them, Lord, of how near you are, how truly near you are, and Lord, your longing to draw close to them as they draw close to you. God, I pray that they wouldn't be discouraged, that they wouldn't be, Lord, in despair, but instead, Lord, they would turn in grace and they would see, Lord, in the gospel, there's the call to come, to come again and again and drink, Lord, from the wells of your grace, to be washed and refreshed anew even this morning. God, give us, give us longing hearts, hungry hearts to be near to you. We pray, Father, that the result of that would be to bear much fruit for you and for your glory, all for Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.